0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, "Reveal stories with purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. Well, this morning, we get to continue our series called Revealed, Stories with a Purpose. And what we've been doing is we've been diving into the Gospel of Luke, and we've been looking at different parables from Jesus. And what we've been learning is that a parable is a story with a lesson attached. Uh, So far, Jesus has been talking to one audience. Every single parable we've looked at has been to the same audience. Do you guys know, can anyone tell me what that audience has been so far? The Pharisees, very well done, yes. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the religious elite of that day, and we see multiple counters with Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus is just straight up with them at many points, and then at other points, he he teaches them with parables. Well, so far, Jesus has been using parables that have hypothetical people in them. You know, we talked about the story of a farmer who went out to go and sow seed. We talked about the story of a father and his two sons. And then there was a certain man who threw a banquet. But in today's parable, Jesus actually introduces a Pharisee into the parable. So if the Pharisees didn't know he was talking to them, they very well know it now. And in today's parable, we're going to see that self-righteousness or our own accomplishments do not save us. Self-righteousness and our accomplishments do not save us. And so we're going to look at Jesus, and he's going to teach the Pharisees these lessons. So will you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, if you don't have a copy of God's word, feel free, pull out your cell phone, iPad, computer, uh, desktop, whatever you brought with you today, Uh, you may have brought an extension cord to plug that in, in order that you could read the word on it. Uh, So we're going to be looking at uh, Luke 18, we're going to be beginning in verse 9, and so Jesus is talking to the Pharisees once again, beginning in verse 9. extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. These are the very words of God. Luke 18, 9. So before we dive into the story, we have to first look at the audience. Luke 18, verse 9. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we see two things here, two characteristics of the people that Jesus is talking to and he's telling this story to. The first one is they trusted in who that they were righteous? Themselves. I think it's good that we're interactive so that we can all stay awake in this time. So they trusted, me too. They trusted in themselves in order that they were righteous. And they treated others with what? With contempt. So this audience believed that because of their good deeds, because of what they've done, that they are good enough that they could declare themselves righteous. Now, in order for you to truly understand just how pompous this is, you have to understand what it means to be righteous. Righteous means to be in proper standing before God. So the people that he's talking to here are the people who say, Okay, I am just that great. I am just that good. That because of me and trustee in myself, that I am just so good that I can stand before the presence of the holy, righteous, mighty, powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. And I can say, God, listen, I know I missed that mark but listen I declare myself righteous not only do they say that but they also treat others with contempt They are so puffed up with themselves that they're flying in the air like a balloon in the space where no brain is, and they're up there and they're looking down and they're looking down at other people and they're saying, Oh my, I am so much greater than all of those common folk down there. And they treat others badly because of that. They do not treat others with love. Now, do you start to see a little bit of an issue when we look at somebody who declares themselves righteous and also? also treats others with contempt, feeling they are before God righteous because of their own actions, but then at the same time that they can treat others like dirt because of just how righteous they are. The group Jesus is talking to here is the Pharisees. And we see the way Jesus starts this story. He starts by saying, two men went up into the temple to pray. So what you have going on here is there are two men who are going up to the temple to pray. This is most likely the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, where, where they would go once a year. They would go and they'd go up the south side of the temple and they would go up 30 large steps in order to get to the temple. And what would happen there is they would pray and there'd be a sacrifice offered for their sins and the atonement would be extended to them because that's how it worked back then. The way that you got right standing with God, the way that your sins were paid for was for an animal to die because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we see two different characters that are introduced. The first is a Pharisee. Now you have to imagine the journey of the Pharisee. The Pharisee comes up to the steps of the temple. There's about 30 steps with large platforms that he had to walk up. And with each and every step, as he walked higher and higher, he got more confident. As he thought about all of his accomplishments and all of the great things that he had done and all of the things that he had done uh, that puts him in right relationship with God he became more and more confident. I can imagine he is just skipping up the stairs ready to go right into the center of the temple which was his place because he is just that righteous and stand before God. And we see him walk in front of God, stand before him and start to pray. But the way he prays is not the way God has prescribed to pray. He says, God, thank you. Thank you for creating the world. Thank you for your grace. They would have understood that. No, no. He says, thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Especially that guy, the tax collector. Well, we have another character in the story. It's the tax collector. Now, you have to understand who the tax collector was. Tax collector was seen as the scum of society. Tax collectors were actually Jews that were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from the citizens. And the way that they did this was with strong-arm tactics. They would hire groups of thugs. They would do whatever they needed to in order to get money from the Jews. And they would take above and beyond what's owed to the Romans because anything that they made above and beyond that, they got to keep for themselves. So they were getting rich off of the backs of the Jewish people. They were like the mafia of that day. They did whatever they needed to in order to get the money. So they were a hated people. We see a tax collector. But the tax collector's journey is different. He walks up that same flight of stairs, but every single step he takes, he becomes more weighed down. He becomes more burdened. He becomes more unsure of himself. So much so that as he gets to the top of those stairs, he won't even go fully into the temple. He stands outside. Maybe he was standing in the court of the Gentiles, which is actually a place that was reserved for those who were not Jews because Gentiles, all of us, unless you're Jewish, all of us, would not be allowed to enter into the temple, into the presence of God. They had to stay outside in the quarter for the Gentiles, and this may be where the tax collector stood. What we see here, and what we're learning in this parable, is we see a lesson. We see two different approaches to coming before God. Two different approaches that people take when they come before God. The first approach is represented by the Pharisee. The Pharisee can stand before God in full confidence of himself to declare himself righteous before God because of all the deeds they did, all of the laws that they kept, because they were just that great. We see the Pharisee actually list off his religious resume as we look at the text. He stands, he says, thank you that you have not made me like other people, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like that text collector. Listen to what I do, God, listen. Hold on a se- Listen, I know you're in heaven. I know you got all the angels. I, I know you're, you're in control of all things, but hold on a moment. Listen, listen how great I am. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. So give two things on his resume. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, you have to understand that for Israel, you only had to fast one time a year according to the law of God, and that was a day of atonement on Yom Kippur. But what actually is happening here, this dude's fasting twice a week. So he's fasting like 100 times a year. But what's actually going on here is these Pharisees would most likely, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, it's important to know that because Mondays and Thursdays were market day in the town. And so the Pharisees, they would, they would fast and, and they wanted to make sure there was enough people to see them. And, and you look at Matthew chapter 6, it's hilarious because in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about the Pharisees who stand at the corners and pray. And they pray this prayer, oh God, thank you that I'm not like all these other people. But then also, they, they would fast as well. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, listen, when you fast, don't, don't tear your clothes, don't mark yourself with ashes, uh, don't show people that you're fasting, do it before you and God, because it's a relationship with him that really matters. The Pharisees, they would walk around like, oh, oh, and you walk around and be like, oh, what's wrong? Oh, nothing, nothing. Dude, you're like bent over and you're grabbing your stomach. They said, dude, back then, you're bent over and you're grabbing your stomach. What is wrong with you? And they'd be like, okay, if you must know, I'm fasting. I do it like twice a week. It's really hard, but it's my burden to bear as a righteous man before God. The heart behind all of these actions were to be seen by others. It was for power and position and honor and money and privilege and the the seats at, at all of the greatest banquets that they would be honored. And so the way that they believed and the way that they approached God was trusting in themselves that they were just that great to stand before him. Now, when we think about that, it seems comical. But when we look at our world today the majority of people stand before God this way. If we look at every other world religion besides Christianity, the basis of salvation or heaven is based upon your own good deeds. Let's examine a couple of them. We look at Hinduism. In Hinduism, the ultimate is to reach nirvana, this place of peace where everything is perfect. Or if you're somebody who's poor, you can't even think to ascend to that place of peace. But instead, your hope is that you will do enough good deeds on this earth that hopefully when you die, you'll come back onto this earth as something very special. And one of those main things that they would see as special was coming back as a cow. That's, that, cows are actually holy in India. As we look at that. If we look at Islam, with Islam, you you do everything that you can to just keep the Quran. The Quran is their holy book. You try and keep all of those things. And if you do enough good things, you might just get into heaven. But you're never guaranteed. The only way you're ever guaranteed to be in heaven is through martyrdom, through killing yourself for the faith. It makes sense now why they fly into buildings or they blow up buildings. For their guarantee of heaven. Or if we look a little closer to home with Mormonism. We look at Mormonism and we see that Mormonism believes that if you believe in Jesus plus doing good deeds. Doing all the special rituals and making sure that you are a moral person. You might get into one of the levels of heaven. If we look at Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that if you evangelize and you go out and tell enough people uh, about Jehovah that maybe you'll be accepted into the 144,000 that are listed in Revelation and that's how you get into the favor and presence of the kingdom. If we look at Roman Catholicism, we believe in Jesus Christ plus... Praying to the saints, paying penances, taking communion and graces, uh, all confession to the priest. It's it's Jesus plus and the reality is is christianity is the only religion that says it is only through jesus christ that i can be saved the reality is it's not about deeds we do it's about something that has already been done which is jesus christ dying on the cross praise the lord And if we look at at everyone, one of the greatest ways to tell what a person puts their confidence in when it comes to heaven is to go to them and say, hey, listen, if you died tonight, you've probably heard this one, if you died tonight and you were standing before heaven, and we we think of heaven as the pearly gates, because that's kind of how it's been depicted, and God's standing before those, he says, why should I let you into heaven? The majority of the answers from people are going to be, because I'm a good person, because I'm a humanitarian, because I I served in the Peace Corps because I went to church every single week and I tithe every single week. I try to be a good person. But the core fallacy of this, the core reality of this is that it is built upon the fact that you believe that people are at their core Good. People are not, at their core, good. We look at the scripture. You won't find that anywhere. Show me where it says that people at their very core are good. I will show you scripture after scripture that says people are depraved, dark-hearted, missing the mark of God's holiness, that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There is none righteous, no one won, no one understands, no one sees God, that we're dead in our trespasses. And since we are helpless, we are hopeless, there is no way we can earn our salvation at all. It is only by the grace, unmerited, favor of God that we could ever step into his presence and know him. Praise God. But the Pharisees missed it. And there are so many people out there who miss it too because of that lie that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then God just has to let you into heaven because you've declared yourself righteous. Righteous. That's why we must preach the good news that you don't have to earn your salvation. You have to surrender. You have to realize you can't earn your salvation and you have to realize that there's one who has and that you can be forgiven. So that's one way that people go before God is self-righteousness, which we see is represented by a majority of the people in our world. The second way that we see is, is represented by the tax collector. Now we see the tax collector and his, his feelings and his humility are represented by a couple different things. First, his location. He doesn't even go into the temple. Second is his position. Look at what it says in verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He's standing far off and he's standing with his head down. Now what does putting your head down represent? Or shame. He's shame. I see this when one of my kiddos spills a red drink on our carpet or you find a dirty diaper that was hidden somewhere and it's confronted. The posture of that child is one of shame. David calls it being downcast in the Psalms. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God. So he's got this position and this posture of shame. Finally, it is his Posture, look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. He's beating his chest. Why is he beating his chest? Well, in order for you to get this, you have to understand what it meant for a man in Middle Eastern society, even today, to beat their chest. This is not something that men in society did. This was a representation of the ultimate depth of sorrow that this man is feeling. So much so, he feels this sorrow within himself. Well, what's he sorrowful for? Why is he beating his chest? Well, for the Jewish person, the heart is the very core of a person, it's where everything comes out of. You've heard, uh, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That does not mean a mental assent. What believing in your heart means is your whole core of everything you are is surrendered to it and given to it. That's what believe in your heart means. Your life is given to it. And so the heart of the person They knew was depraved. That's what Jeremiah said. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. So he's beating his chest in sorrow. This is a a, a position that is only reserved for the most horrific events. The only other place we see this is in Luke chapter 23, verse 48, in all of the New Testament, which reads this. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. What event do you think this is? This is the crucifixion of the Creator of the universe. That's the type of sorrow that this tax collector is feeling. Now look, there is a reason for this sorrow. This is so important to see. Because sorrow, godly sorrow, the Bible tells us, leads to repentance. What is that sorrow over? Look at verse 13. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He sees his sin clearly. He sees who he is before God. He is a sinner. He is someone who can never earn God's right standing. He could never stand there and declare himself righteous. That is what is so amazing about God's grace. Think about the words to that song. You know, it's interesting because the majority of people, if they grew up in church at all, or really it's one of the most popular songs of all time, they'll sing the song Amazing Grace. I want to I list off a couple of the words that are talked about in the very first verse of Amazing Grace. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Excuse me, what'd you just call yourself when you're singing that song? Who saved a good person? Who saved somebody that's just that great? No. Saved a wretch. (laughs) On our own, we are only wretches. I know it sounds hard to hear. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It's the bad news. On our own, we will go after sin every step that we take. On our own, we want to be God of our own lives. On our own, we want to be king. On our own, we want to go after everything that makes us happy and brings us the greatest pleasure, and that's what we would go after. That's what the Bible says, and ultimately what we do is we trade the things that God created for the creator. That's what Romans 1 says. And because of that, we miss the mark. We try and be God over our own lives. We try and be ruler over our own lives. And the reality is, it makes sense then that every man-made religion makes me the one who is in charge of my eternal destiny, doesn't it? Because if I'm God of my own life, well, then I better have a say in what my eternity is and I better be able to earn that. I can earn everything else in life. If I work hard, I can get a promotion. If I, if I just do enough, I can, I can get enough prestige. I, I can do everything else in life. Why can't I earn my own salvation? <laughs> because you can't. <laughs> Because it is only through Jesus Christ. And this is the realization that this tax collector has come to. He sees his sin so clearly. One of the greatest indicators that you've truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ is a sorrow and an absolute hatred for your sin. That's one of the greatest indicators that you have surrendered your life to Jesus. If you're sorrowful about your sin, they say, God, what did I do all these years of my life? What do I do when I sin against you? God, I'm sorry. I'm repentant. I'm sorrowful. Oh, Lord Jesus, who will save me from the sin, as the apostle Paul says. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. If you don't have sorrow over your sin, if you don't have hatred for your sin, check and see if you've surrendered. This position is one that we see that's true repentance and is truly before God. And what we learn, the second point, is that the way of the kingdom is a matter of the heart. Both of these positions are presented. Two guys. The Pharisees are going to think, well, obviously the Pharisee is the one who is favored with this. He's doing everything right. And they're going to think the tax collector is a worthless wretch who embarrasses himself at every point that he gets. You do not take that position of sorrow as a man in Middle Eastern society. What is this guy doing? And so what we see here is Jesus says, who is the one who is favored in this scenario? Look at verse 14 here. We're at 13 and 14. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Look at that. Jesus says, listen, you think this Pharisee, He's the one who's justified, right? Because of all the good things he did. No. The one who's justified, meaning that his standing before God is made right. The one who is as if he never sinned before is the one who truly is the sorrowful one. The one who realizes his sin and the one who is before God in proper realization that he stands before a holy and righteous and powerful God who he does not even deserve to come into the presence of. In fact, if we look at the scripture... even when the angel of the Lord came down, or we see angels, they react by falling on their faces. Imagine, God said to Moses, if you saw my face, you would die. So he puts him in a cleft of a rock. He walks by him and lets him see his back. And even with that, Moses' face just goes, boom. And people are like, that dude was with God. That dude, that dude saw God in some way. Listen, that is who God is. If you have a proper view of God, then you can have a proper view of your sin. Beautiful thing, though, is we come back. Because when we have a proper view of our sin, then we can have a proper view of our Savior. When you have a proper view of your Savior, that is when your life starts to transform To realize I am a wretch who doesn't deserve salvation, and there's nothing that I can do to ever earn that. But I have a God who is loving and gracious. They go back to the parable of the prodigal son make me like one of your servants. No, no, he comes in into, and he says, come into my house. Kill the fatted calf. I lavishly bless you. I give you my mercy. I give you my forgiveness. I give you your status as son or daughter. I give you an eternal glory. Amen. Corbin. <laughs> He's realizing that sin makes you sorrowful. So the question is, what qualifies us? The way you answer that question, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer to that is what you put your faith and trust in. Please don't stand before God on judgment day and say, God, you can let me into heaven, because my parents are Christians. Kiddos, teenagers, young adults, college students, singles, young marrieds, old marrieds, all singles. We all have to take a step of surrender before God. Your parents' faith is not going to save you. I want you to know that your parents' are praying on their knees for your salvation if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. And your parents want you to surrender your life to Jesus because they can look and they can see what is coming down the road. And it's so easy for us when we're younger to just focus on this life and to think that it's all that there is. And the reality is this life is but a vapor. And if you don't surrender your life to Jesus Christ and you will be apart from from God's pre- from you will be a part from the blessings of God, you will be still under his judgment in a place called hell, which is designed for the judgment of Satan and his demonic forces. But also, all those who don't surrender their lives to Jesus will be there. And I do not want you to be there. I want you to be in glory, in heaven, with Jesus, in his presence, worshiping and giving his name great glory. Because the beautiful thing is you don't have to earn it. There's not a good good things you can do to earn it and the only answer to that question is because of amazing grace. God amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ today, please don't leave here without talking to me or somebody else that you see by the doors or someone with a lanyard. We want to be able to help you know Christ more by your point of surrender. We want to disciple you. Even right now, in this moment, you can surrender your life to Jesus. You just say, God, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me just the posture of the tax collector. And even in your seat right now, God will save you from your sins if you're somebody whom God has saved you from your sins, may we never lose that posture of humility. May we never look down on others with contempt because of just how righteous or holy we are. But may we realize that in the presence of God, apart from his grace, we are a wretched sinner who deserves nothing but to be under God's punishment. But because of the grace of God, because of the goodness of our God, because of the love of our God, we can be saved. Our God, who though he was king of kings and lord of lords, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we get to worship that God. The God who came down in the form of man, fully God and fully man, and became a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, that we could be saved. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.